Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Could music therapy be a beneficial tool to add to your non-pharmaceutical interventions toolkit? Researchers are finding that music therapy has many benefits in the realm of health and healing, from reducing stress and promoting relaxation to reducing anxiety levels before surgery more effectively than prescription drugs. Music therapy has been used to treat pain and multiple mental disorders from anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. It has also been proven effective in dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and even autism. We're glad you are joining us for this series on music in health and healing, where we'll discuss how music is used in Western healthcare to promote physical and psychological healing and to improve quality of life in neurological conditions. Welcome to our podcast on music in health and healing. This is going to be a great topic for everyone. Our subject matter expert today is Dr. Margaret Carno, Professor of Clinical Nursing and Pediatrics at the University of Rochester School of Nursing in Rochester, New York. Welcome, Dr. Carno. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about talking um, about health and music and healing. Yes, I'm, I'm excited about this too. This is so intriguing to me. Now, you know, this sounds like a silly question because we all have our own concepts, but what exactly is music and what are the basic components of music? So first, before we start talking about music, we really have to discuss what is sound. Uh, so okay. what sound is um, something makes the air vibrate with a pressure wave. Um, and then these the particles keep vibrating and keep pushing other particles along until they hit our tympanic membrane. And the, the start of it could be the plucking of a string, the blowing in an instrument, our own vocal cords. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different ways that these pressure waves can be started. And then how fast the pressure wave is, is um, what we call the frequency, which we measure in um, cycles per second. So they're called hertz. And those determine the pitch. So if it's faster, it is a higher sound than if it's lower. Okay. Um, and as humans, we really can only hear about between 20 and uh, 20,000 hertz with our best um, area of hearing between 200 and 500, excuse me, 2,000, 5,000 hertz. Wow. Um, you know, that's why they have dog whistles. Dogs hear differently than okay. cats, than humans. Right. Now, as I said, the frequency is the pitch. The amount of energy is what we call decibels, and that's the loudness. Okay. So start so basic from starting with that is when you think about music, we have rhythm. Uh-huh. So, you know, the beat, um, tone, which can be a steady 
sound, pitch, which we just talked about, the frequency. Um, quality is called timber or timbre, okay. depending upon. Um, and the way the notes, the rhythm, a melody is put together is what we call music. And really, all music is is a collection of sounds in a time in a way that expresses feelings, ideas. Um, there's color when you think about it, when you think about the different um, tones or different instruments that are used. It's used for communal practices um, along with personal enjoyment. Sure. Um, and we associate pitches and certain um, note phrases with certain feelings. So when you think about the sweeping orchestral pieces of any Harry Potter movie, for example. Right. Or that those two note opening phrase of Jaws. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> or or even the rights of spring. You know, oh, those right. invoke um, feelings. And it's interesting. There's been um, some there's been a lot of information on music and health, healing, bio, the biology of it. And the real thought is that music is the rhythmic driver, meaning that the rhythm helps the body to sync, uh, become synchronous. And so, and this is how it helps with stress reduction and promotes um, empathy. Oh, wow. So it, it it affects a wide range of things that we will talk about um, as we go through this podcast. And we have to remember music is the one thing humans do that affects all the brain. All the brain. So all the brain. Wow. That's yeah. interesting. I didn't realize mm -hmm. that. Uh, was so effective Let, let's talk about the physiology of that so how does it affect the brain and like can you walk through how that all those sure. areas are that'd be great sure so our frontal lobe really you know when we think about it we think about emotions and regulation that's sure. music enhances the function and we'll talk about that uh, more in um when we talk about traumatic brain injury oh good but yeah music enhances that and our frontal lobe helps with the pleasure our temporal lobes if it is song um, the left interprets the words and the right interprets the sound wow that makes sense when you say it like that i just never um, thought of it broca's area is where we start feeling about the music um, the Wernicke's area is how our brain analyzes and enjoys the music. Um, even the occipital lobe, uh -huh. some people can listen to music, close their eyes, and actually see the rhythm or the melody um, on their closed eyes. Or some musicians can actually see the notes. Wow. Um, so it really... Um, it increases dopamine um, in parts of the brain, similar to the levels that you get when you ingest cocaine. So wow. we're talking real pleasure symptoms. Um, it affects the amygdala, 
it controls pleasure. The hippocampus, it actually increases neurogenesis um, in the hippocampus to um, produce new neurons and improve memory. The hypothalamus, it acts right on that. Um, that's where we get our um, decrease in blood pressure, increase in heart rate, um, or if it's fast music that we revs us up, it can increase blood pressure um, and heart rate. Um, and then interestingly, it also um, increases dopamine at the Putman area, which is where our responses to rhythm is of the brain. And we'll talk about it a little more, but music can, we can use music um, in patients with Parkinson's at a certain rhythm to help them walk, help their gait be better. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, be less at risk for falls. The problem with that, though, is, is we haven't been able to extend it longer than the time of listening to music. Sure. Oh, wow. Um, but that is, you know, a quick rundown of all the different areas where music affects the brain. Wow. That's that's really impressive. The, the Parkinson's scenario in particular, that really does speak to how the brain is affected by it. Uh, now, mm -hmm. uh, and they do say it can soothe the savage beast, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. isn't that the expression? Yes. So yes. when it when it is calming and it does feel like it's decreasing your blood pressure, it actually is. It is. It is. Um, and it also decreases your, your respiratory rate. Huh. So the sound processing actually begins in the brainstem. Um, so that's where your heart rate's controlled, your blood pressure, your respiration. Um, and it also decreases cortisol production. Huh. It makes the body relax and there's been published studies um one well 2016 where they actually played music um in a surgical icu and it decreased heart rate um blood pressure both systolic and diastolic respiratory rate and increased um, oxygen saturations. That's amazing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Everyone should be doing that. That's mm -hmm. really something else. Now, um, it's interesting because I think there's some level, you can, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think there's some level of uh, preference that's associated. I'm just, I'm thinking of a scenario. Uh, my brother um, loves classical music and I mm -hmm. would be, I stayed at his place and he played it at night to help him sleep. And it wasn't calming. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like Bach. It was like, you know, uh, the 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 coyotes chasing the roadrunner kind of um, <laughs> going back to our first introduction yeah. to classical music, classical right? Music, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I and I found it I found it really annoying, but he found it mm -hmm. calming, which is interesting, right? Yes, I mean when we talk about music and we talk about whether it be calming or stimulating, you really have to take preference into account. Sure. For example, um, I am in a rock band. Wow. And yeah, it's a little side project. That's fantastic. You know, besides teaching. Yeah. Um, yes, I've been a music. The reason um, 
I'm so interested in this. I've been in, um, an amateur musician my whole life. Yeah, um, myself as well, as you can see my little guitar back there. I see the there, guitar, yes. I've learned a lot um, already. So it really talks about preference, also rhythm and the rate. I mean, if it is at a nice 80 beats per minute, that's going to help you slow down as opposed to a song that's at 120 beats per minute. <laughs> right, right. But that 120 beats per minute may help you with exercise, you know, to motivate you to do exercise, to get you going. Right. So you can actually use uh, music both to calm you and to stimulate you. And that's what the beauty is. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Okay, so as for using it in health and healing, is there some historical mm -hmm. basis to this? Or what can you tell us about when this started? Yes, there is some historical. What we do know is that the first bone flute that was found, it was found in France between, and it was made between 20,000 and 30,000 years ago. Goodness. So we're talking, you know, early in human civilization. And wow. when you think about it, the person making it had to figure out how to blow into it, where to put the holes. And, you know, so it encompassed everything of brain and development wow. and muscle memory. There is some... um early work um they have just unearthed these letters from bologna um in the 14th century where musicians would be sent to people's homes to try to help them with their melancholy and other diseases now it didn't help obviously with um any infectious disease process sure. however the patient reported feeling better um, and there's even a report in the 1700s, um, in um, 1871, John Jackson, who was a British neurologist, actually used music to help a child speak. The child couldn't speak, but could sing the words. That's amazing. And so there's a lot of historical um, references to using music, uh, maybe not directly in health, but but still to bring that communal and that um, healing process. It's not fascinating that he couldn't speak, but he could sing. Yes. And we know there are several cases of people who have severe stutters, but when they sing, they're fine. Yes. That's yes. Always, that, that has certainly arisen. Um, Mel Tillis being one of them, if I remember correctly. Uh, so I know it's been used for neurological conditions. So can you talk more about that piece? Okay. So as I mentioned before, uh, there's been a lot of work in Parkinson's in helping patients um, with Parkinson's to move at a regular rate and to lose the tremors. And stu multiple studies have shown that it improves gait it improves stride length, um, cadence, and velocity with the cueing. So it's almost like the the brain just is like, oh, okay, this is the rate and rhythm I need to be walking at. And that becomes the rate and rhythm <laughs> the person 
walks app, which is um, amazing. Um, it is. And there's, it also has shown to improve mood. We know with Parkinson's that there are some mood swings and mood issues, and whether it's because of the dopamine or just because of having a chronic illness. But we have seen where it has um, helped with mood. So um, there was a study published in um, 2020 that when the person de a person with Parkinson's deemed the music as pleasurable, they had a much higher um, improve, um, improvement in their gait than when it was just like a steady monotone, like um, a metronome um, or unpleasant music. Mm. Also, it's been used in patients with Tourette's to decrease the, the um, ticks, and it's both self-reported and observed. Wow. Um, and finally, in um, children with autism, there's been some small pilot work that has demonstrated a decrease in their stereotypical behaviors wow. and compulsive behaviors. That's really interesting. Uh, so it obviously, when you talk about how it can alter a mood or help alter a mood, um, it can also help people express a mood. I'm assuming as well. Um, you know, I'm just mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of times when uh, I, I'm thinking of teenage angst. I think we've all had it, but there were times when you were feeling certain things, and if you played the music, oh, it yeah. helped you work through the mood as much as it yes. did. Uh, yes. As much as it has the power to uh, change a mood, and I'm sure that's yes. why there's a lot. You know why. Angry music is popular with people who are angry because because it helps. It, am I going on down a rabbit hole here? No, you're not. <laughs> but we have to be careful because when we think of some music that we might consider angry, like thrash metal, and sure that really you know two hundred beats a minute. If you look at the words to that, also, it is not. It's anger, but it's not. Um. It's more a, it's not an anger at a person. It's more helping the listener release their anger. Right. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it, it, I'm, the power that it has is, uh, is amazing. I've already learned so yes. much about this. What about degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or dementia? Does it help with that? Yes, it does. Um, there have been multiple studies that show have demonstrated it um, decreases agitation, um, some anxiety, uh -huh. um, depression in earlier stages of degenerative uh, brain diseases, improves um, psychological symptoms. Uh -huh. er early, it can actually boost uh, cognition, memory, and motor function along with quality of life. Now, that is early in Alzheimer's in the degenerative process. Um, what we do know is even at toward the end of the Alzheimer's um, continuum or dementia continuum, patients still respond to music that they grew up with. They wow. will start singing it or at least moving to it. And this is people who, who have no other who do not interact with their environment. 
So they're just sitting there at that severe end of Alzheimer's. But when they hear music of their generation, they start um, to sway to it, sing to it, move to it. Smiles come out on their faces. Um, there's even um, a YouTube video, not that that's the best in evidence-based. However, it was uh, a 98-year-old ballerina, Russian ballerina, and they played Swan Lake for her. Oh. And she had been totally disengaged. She started to move her hands in the way she would have danced. Oh, Swan wow, Lake. wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. Are there any fears? So, oh, go ahead, sorry, go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. No, you carry on. You go. Okay. Are there any theories on why that's the case? They feel that a um, couple reasons that those memories are very, very de still very deep in the brain in, you know, the limbic system, the amygdala. So not in the cortex that's being destroyed, but very deep in um, what some biologists call the reptilian brain. Okay. You know, that very deep, the amygdala, the hypothalamus, all those things that we need to, to live and breathe and, and survive. They also, with dementia, does not affect the cerebellum. When you look at dementia patients, their cell is not affected. What's affected is the connection between the cerebrum and the cerebellum. So that connection's gone, but the actual uh, movement part of the brain is not gone. Wow. Um, and there have been studies that have even demonstrated that it music will calm patients with dementia better than any other non-pharmacological method. Wow. That's really impressive. I, I was wondering if it had something to do with the, well, you've mentioned that, that uh, uh, the cerebellum. I was wondering if it had something to do with the fact that we use every part of our brain to process it, that all yes. of the other ones are still able to, on some level, Yes. To process even if yes. that communication isn't happening it's fascinating yes because you know as i mentioned before you know we're talking about the amygdala the uh -huh. hypothalamus you know we're talking deep brain structures that's incredible so yes from i know while well, you're a subject matter expert on a lot of things uh, and we're grateful that you are but i know that your uh, main expertise has been pediatrics correct yes have you seen mm -hmm. it used or practiced in pediatrics yes we do use it um a lot my background's actually in pediatric critical care right so that's I why the that's right. the phil the physiology is uh, you know i understand quite well um, for distraction, um, oh. during painful procedures or even getting blood drawn, there some people will use it to help um, decrease nausea. <laughs> you know, just to kind of block the thought of that constant nausea, just to kind of like relax the patient. Sure. So we have seen it in. Um, in that we've seen it in neonatal intensive care units wow. where if soft music is played the 
um, premature infants, their heart rate decreases to normal level, blood pressure is at an appropriate level, um, and especially someplace like that that's quite loud. Sure. And But to have that calming music, huh? I mean, and, and think about it. What do parents do to their newborn baby? It's one of the first things they do. Sing. They sing to them. That's true. Oftentimes while they're pregnant. Yes. Right? There is that. Mm -hmm. I've heard that too, exposing uh, the fetus to music or singing to the singing to the baby. That's really interesting. Yes. It, it is. That we still need a lot more um, research on, but still the baby does hear the mother's voice. Right, right. Wow, the research piece of it, doing the research must be fascinating for people that are involved on that level. Yes, yes, it's very fascinating. Wow. little hard because, you know, there is that subjective part of music. Sure. But, yeah. Um. So what about pain control? Would it help with that? There has been a number of studies that show um, adults in ICUs where um, listening to music activates actually um, both the mu receptors, so what we use for opiates, along with release of endorphins. Huh. So, you know, obviously it has to be music that the person enjoys. Sure. But... Um, it can really increase the sense of pleasure, decrease the se the sensation of pain, can cause decrease in release of all the stress hormones that you don't need to have running around in the when you're in the ICU, and that decrease in cortisol levels will last a little while. So it's not just immediate while you're listening. It will last um, uh, a little while. Um, and there was actually a meta-analysis done not too long ago. Um, I actually personally know one of the authors. And um, they demonstrated, they looked at all the research out there. And in this meta-analysis, they actually demonstrated that 20 to 30 minutes is the golden amount of time to listen um, to music huh. to help with pain. Less than 20 minutes did not significantly change the pain scores, at least in the studies that they um, looked at. That's interesting. And that's not to say that you stop at 25 to 30. You can continue, but you need to get yes. to that point is what you're saying. Yes. Right. Yes. You need to get to that point. Right. So this really speaks a lot to nursing intervention when you think about it. Even, you know, if you have a patient who's intubated, you can ask family members what their favorite music is. Uh, and it doesn't have to disturb the masses if you had, uh, uh, like, you know, earbuds or something and tested the volume okay. first. Of course, goodness, we don't want to blast course, them out of the yes. room. Yeah, But uh, that's that's fascinating. And, and you know, think about it with childbirth. Sure. Mothers are encouraged to listen to their favorite music, bring what, you know, calms them. Right. So, you know, it's it's being used and we know it works. It's just now the research is catching up with 
what we've been doing for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. It may even, of course, this is entirely theoretical, but it may even help the baby through the birthing process if it's music uh, in the room. Who knows? I'm just throwing stuff out there because that would be a really hard thing to figure out. That would be. I, <laughs> hard to be subjective with a with a newborn. Yes. But, and they're going to cry regardless. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we want them to cry. Yes. Oh, yes, we do. Maybe we should play music they don't like. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> Sometimes bad music can make me cry. So there you go. Oh yes. Again, True. it's it's perception. Uh, one yes. one person's great calming music is another person's not so much. That is all the time we have for episode one. We hope you will join us for episode two as we continue our discussion on the culture and history of music, and take a deeper dive into how music is used to treat traumatic brain injuries and other mental health disorders. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.